Hey, well, I'm, I'm coming here today after spending the weekend out at the men's retreat. In case you don't know, this whole weekend, we've had about 100 guys from our church that have been out just across the border in Oklahoma at our men's retreat. It's been a wonderful time. I came back last night in time to preach last night at Saturday night service. And probably before we're done here today, you're going to see about 100 guys. They probably smell. <laughs> they probably look a little disheveled. They're all going to be wearing these uh, men's ministry shirts. They're going to walk in. Their plan right now is to be a part of the 1130 service because the retreat ends. And so you're probably going to cross paths with them as you're, as you're leaving. But I can tell you the next service at 1130, if you want to stick around, it's going to be, I think, a little, a little wild, if you want to know my opinion. These guys are fired up. But uh, hey, uh, what I want to do just real quick before we get started is for those, I'm just do everything I can to help keep our church connected with things happening. I'd like to show you, uh, show you a short 35, 40 second video clip of uh, a little bit of that retreat out there so you kind of know what it was like. Here, watch this. That's just a little flavor of what they did out there. It also shows you what Pastor John looks like in shorts. So, okay, you've always wondered, what do those legs look like? Well, there, there they are, right there. But we've had a wonderful time, and, and I appreciate your guys' prayers. I think God's doing some really good things in the men's ministry here at New Life. And if you're not plugged into anything that the men's ministry is doing here, fellas, let me encourage you to do so. Get on the app, find out what's happening. There's a lot of opportunities. Hey, we are in a series right now called Rescued. We're studying through the book of Exodus. So please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter seven. That's where we're gonna be starting today. And while you're finding Exodus chapter seven, let me give you a quick recap of what we've learned so far. God has called Moses and told him to go to Egypt. Why did he do that? Because his people, the Israelites, were in slavery. They were in bondage there. And, and they cried out to God, and God heard their prayers. And so he sends Moses to rescue them. And so he goes there, Moses does, and he demands of Pharaoh, you let my people go so they can worship me. But just as God had predicted, long before this ever started, that Pharaoh would refuse to comply. And even after Pharaoh saw Moses do what? Turn the staff into a snake. Even after after he saw that, he just wouldn't do it. His heart was completely unmoved. So we come to Exodus chapter 7, verse 14, and this is what God says to Moses. Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let my people go. Now, God says these words the day before he sends the very first of 10 Plagues. Now let me test your knowledge. Let me test. See, let's find out who's been reading ahead. What was the very first plague? All right, very good. I am not convinced. I'm like, let's go back and start over. Let's just start over. We didn't know. I'm teasing you. You're right. God turns the Nile River into blood. And it was a particularly nasty plague. And we're going to talk about that here a little bit today before we're done. But uh, that, that's, he says these words right before he sends that very first plague onto the land. And I think this is probably a really good place 
to ask this question. Why was Pharaoh's heart so unyielding? Why was his heart so unyielding? Why, why couldn't he see the light? I, I shared with you several, over the last several weeks that, that uh, I know you've got questions about this language in the Bible about Pharaoh's hard heart and that we would be dealing with this question. And, and I think on the eve of God sending the very first plague into Egypt is probably as good a time as any to tackle some of these hard questions. As we've studied in Exodus so far, we've seen that Pharaoh was given a lot of reasons for why he should have a turn of heart, why he should look to God. He should pay attention to Moses. We would think a reasonable person would pay attention to what Moses was saying and respond. But as we've seen several times now, Pharaoh rejected everything. And so the question becomes, was Pharaoh just hard-headed? Was he just a hard-headed guy? Was he blind to reality? Uh, was he so prideful that regardless of how much evidence and truth there was out there, he just is not going to budge? Was he that? Or did God make him that way? Or did God make him unyielding? What in the world is going on with Pharaoh's, Pharaoh? And I can tell you that it's questions like these I just proposed that have caused many people to debate this and Books have been written about it and discussions. I can tell you, Bible college and seminaries have, have spent many hours debating these on their classes of what is going on here with Pharaoh. And that's because the language can be a little bit confusing. The language refers to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. In fact, there's 20 times in the book of Exodus where this <clears throat> kind of language is used. Sometimes the text says this, but God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So if that's the case, if that's what's happening, does this mean that, that uh, Pharaoh had no choice in this, that he had no free will? And I can tell you that when you get a room full of Christians together and you start talking about God taking away your free will, we bristle up a little bit. No, I got free will. What are you talking about? Other times in the text, it says Pharaoh's heart became hard or Pharaoh's heart was hard. So does this just mean that he was a bad dude, evil to the core? It's just who he was. There are other times when it says in the text, Pharaoh hardened his heart or his heart was unyielding. There was one time in Exodus chapter nine, verse 34, speaking of Pharaoh, it says these words specifically, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So does this mean that, you know, it was kind of out of his control? It was, it was, that God had nothing to do, I mean, it was all in his control rather, that God had nothing to do with it? I mean, what is going on here? Because the language is confusing. Now, just by a show of hands, how many have read this already kind of going, what is this all about? Yeah, we've got some questions out there. Maybe if I could simplify it, not to be redundant, but just to be clear, I think the confusion simply comes down to this singular question. Did Pharaoh have a hard heart all on his own or did God give it to him or did God make him have it? I mean, I think that's the essence of the question. And if God made him have a hard heart, then we have a whole discussion on free will. And that's a whole nother layer to this conversation. Well, first, you know, I, I'm gonna share with you uh, what I believe. I don't believe that, uh, first of all, I'm gonna cover every nuance or answer every detail because like I said, this is a pretty big one here. 
But I want to tell you what I think. I'm happy to tell you where my study, the conclusions that I've come to in my own, own study, and, and I'm happy to do that today. And hopefully that will bring some clarity or at least send you on your own journey of, of discovery and you wrestle this down yourself. But let me just say this here at the very beginning. For starters, okay, I believe that there's several things happening all at once with this hardening of, of Pharaoh's heart language. But for starters, I want us to just look at the facts. I want us to look at the big picture here. Pharaoh is not a good dude, all right? This is uh, something you need to understand, and I need you to understand it very clearly. And so if you would, nudge the person next to you and make sure they understand this, all right? Let them know. Pharaoh is not a good dude. I'm gonna give you, and if you're watching online, whoever you're with, you tell them the same thing. Pharaoh is not a good dude. And you know what? We pick up on this fact really easily just by reading the text. The obvious language in the text makes him out to be evil. He's this uh, tyrannical dictator who cares nothing about people. We already have seen that he views himself as a deity. He thinks he's a God who is already dug in. He's already admitted, I don't know God, don't care to know God, not gonna do what he says. This is who he is. He's not a good dude. Even before Moses showed up, he was already a harsh leader. He already mistreated people. He was especially cruel to the Israelites. We see that already. I, honestly, it's not hard to prove that Pharaoh was a bad person. He's just, just a rotten guy. And that was before the Exodus account. You know, I think if we go back a couple chapters in Exodus, um, I think we might start to unlock a little bit of this language of Pharaoh's hard heart. If you go back to the moment that God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush and he told Moses all that he wanted Moses to do, in Exodus chapter three, verse 19, God says this. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. I think that's a very key verse in this whole discussion. What is God acknowledging to Pharaoh before anything ever happens? God's already saying, I know exactly who Pharaoh is. I already know what his heart is all about. I, if left alone, he's never gonna humble himself. He's never gonna follow me. I know the future. I know how this all plays out. And I'm telling you, he's an evil guy and he's never going to comply with anything that I, I want him to do. I know already. What's he say? He's not gonna let you go. I know this. So God knows he's not gonna ever surrender. So when you read the rest of the verse, look at verse 20. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I'll perform among them. After that, he will let you go. There is an acknowledgement here by God. Pharaoh's heart is already hard. Pharaoh's heart is already unyielding. And if you think about it, even after all the details of the Exodus have transpired, if you just read forward a few chapters, Pharaoh sees his entire country completely obliterated by these 10 plagues. He loses his firstborn son. He watches his army get decimated in a matter of seconds. He loses everything. And his heart is still hard after that. Not even all of that can get him to change his ways. So the question then becomes, why does it sometimes seem in the Bible as if God hardened Pharaoh's heart? As if he didn't have any free will in this. Well, let me just maybe say it this way. If you're reading the book of Exodus and, and you read the parts about Pharaoh and you see him as a tender-hearted, sweet guy who's, 
desire is to turn to God and he's, a, he's happy to see Moses show up on his door and talk about delivering the Israelites to the promised land and, and Pharaoh wants to do something special for them. If that's how you read Exodus and your impression of, of Pharaoh is that, then yeah, when you read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, you're gonna come to the conclusion, well, that's messed up. That, that's the, the natural conclusion. If, if that was the case, it would be mean of God to, to harden that wonderful man's heart. But from, my, from the way I read the Bible, the way I interpret this and what's going on in the context, that would be an incorrect way of understanding Exodus. Pharaoh's heart was already hard, and God knew that it was evil. God knew it was unrelenting. God knew it wasn't going to change. So God is acknowledging this, and he's acknowledging that only the mighty hand of God would ever compel him to act. It would take these 10 plagues to get him to, to act. So, so for starters, I want us to acknowledge Pharaoh's not a good dude, and God did not force that on him. God did not force him to be evil. He was already that way. But do you remember me saying last week and kind of in the lead up to this moment that, um, that uh, God always has a bigger picture in mind? Do you remember that language from last week? That there's something more than what meets the eye happening here? That when God sent these 10 plagues while rescuing the Israelites, he wasn't just judging the Egyptians. He wasn't just pounding Pharaoh until he relented. No, no, no. What was the bigger picture? What else was going on here? That God was bringing down judgment on what? All the false gods of Egypt. Remember that language from last week? With each of these plagues that we're going to learn about, God was doing what with it? He was obliterating false gods and all their worship in Egypt. And the result would be what? This is the bigger picture. What is the big picture result of the Exodus? That everyone would know that I am the Lord. Now we see this language repeated over and over. God reveals his bigger picture of what's happening. That they would know that I am the Lord. God's plan is going to require some timing. Things need to progress on God's timeline exactly how he wants it to be. Now, let me just share some details and let this become clear for you. There was a reason for why the Israelites had to live in, the, in Egypt and live in slavery for as long as they did. There is a reason why Moses was spared and that he was found by the river by Pharaoh's daughter and he spent the first 40 years of his life as an Egyptian royal in Pharaoh's household. There's a reason for why by Moses would spend the next 40 years of his life in the land of Midian. There is a reason for why God chose the day he did to call Moses back to Egypt. There was a reason, there's a specific reason for when and why God gave Moses the ability to perform these certain miracles for a certain audience in when he did. God knew that Pharaoh was evil and it would take plagues to get him to relent. But God needed these plagues to be unleashed at just the right time and in a certain way so that uh, not just to free the Israelites but that the whole world would know that he is the Lord. God is working his timetable. So it seems strange to read language like God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But where I truly believe we need to understand this is that God didn't need Pharaoh or want him to relent too soon. Think about this. God is working his bigger picture. And if Pharaoh's like, I give, take them too soon, and the rest of these plagues don't unfold the way God's got them planned, 
then there still could be people in Egypt and maybe even some of the Israelites that still think some of these false gods are who they are supposed to worship. So this idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart is God working his timetable. Not yet, Pharaoh. I know you're an evil guy. I know you won't surrender. I know you will once I drop the plagues on you. But in my time, not your time. God didn't make him evil. God's controlling the narrative. He didn't make him evil. So, so here's the thing. That's what we've got to understand. God, his heart was already hard. God's got a bigger picture in mind. But you know, as I've wrestled this down, I think there actually may be another layer or at least an interesting detail on this conversation about Pharaoh's hard heart. And to understand it, you gotta kind of unpack a little bit about what the ancient Egyptians believed. What their, you know, what their vision of heaven and, uh, and, and who a person was, what they culturally believed about these things. For one, they believed Pharaoh was a deity himself. They thought that the Pharaohs themselves were a manifestation of the gods. And the Pharaohs themselves were the purest among all the Egyptians or the people of the world. That was a cultural religious belief at the time. And we know that from ancient Egyptian writings and hieroglyphs and, and the things we find in archaeology. We know that's what they believed. In ancient Egyptian culture, the heart of a person was everything. In fact, these ancient religious texts from Egypt, we learned that the heart was spoken of often. The heart of a person represented their basic essence of a person. Who they really were. Were they a good person or were they a bad person? They say it can be determined by your heart. So there was this concept, there was this belief among ancient Egyptians that at the time of a person's death, the gods would get together and they would weigh a person's heart. And in that moment, the gods would determine if this was a good person or a bad person. They would weigh and decide, was this person too bad of a sinner or was he good enough to move on to the next level in their realms of afterlife? This was a belief among the Egyptians that the gods would weigh a person's heart. So, among all people, who's supposed to have the purest of hearts? Pharaoh. He was divine in their minds. Moses, I believe, would have understood this. I believe the Israelites growing up in Egypt would have understood the way the Egyptians believed about a person's heart. So we come to this text and we read 20 times about Pharaoh's hard heart. Whether God hardened it, he hardened it, or it was just hard. Is that by accident that we read this kind of language about somebody in that culture that, that God was communicating something that Moses would know and relate to? That Pharaoh's got a hard heart. It's dark, it's evil. This is another way, in my mind, God's saying, Pharaoh is not a good dude. He's bad to his core, to the very essence of who he is, his very heart is unyielding and hard, it's, it's bad. And I find it interesting. God's bigger picture is what? That everyone will know that I am God. Here you have God sending Moses into battle, saying this guy's bad. And I, as the one true God, have weighed his heart. And it's no good. God made Pharaoh out to be a mortal man in the hands of an incredibly powerful God. 
I think God's choice of words here amplifies his bigger picture that everyone would know that I am God. Not even Pharaoh can stand up to me. I'll measure you by your own scales and he is not good. So he's been reduced. Now as I've wrestled that down, that's where the text leads me. I personally don't believe that God took Pharaoh's free will away, not for a second. I do not believe that Pharaoh was God's pawn in his spiritual chess game that he was playing back then. I don't believe that at all. Pharaoh's heart was pure evil. And God is influencing Pharaoh because it was about his timing. So that everybody would know that he is God. So with that, God unleashes the first of 10 plagues. And as I mentioned a moment ago, this first one is particularly nasty. To kind of help you feel it, I'd like to show you this clip. Ramesses, let my people go. (laughs) Still gnawing away at that bone, are we? Carry on. You cannot keep ignoring us. Enough. I will hear no more of this Hebrew nonsense. Bring him to me. Moses! No! Take the staff in your hand, Moses. the superior might of our gods. Uh. By the power of Ra. (laughs) Abandon this futile mission, Moses. I've indulged you long enough. This must now be finished. No, Ramesses. It is only beginning. Hey, not bad for a cartoon, huh? How many of you seen that 1998 cartoon, The Prince of Egypt? You guys seen that? Not, not bad at all. Moses looks good for 80, doesn't he? It's a lot of hair for an 80-year-old. And for a 46-year-old. Um, I think that's a good, a good visual to, um, to introduce these plagues. Now let's read it from the Bible. Look at Exodus chapter 7, verse 15. God said this to Moses. 
Go to Pharaoh in the morning and see, as he goes out to the river, confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. I would imagine, if I had to guess, Moses didn't sleep a wink that night as he knew what was coming. Maybe in the back of his mind, he was thinking about the miracle of the staff turning into the snake and probably saying to himself, oh, Pharaoh ain't seen nothing yet. Nothing yet. We don't know why Pharaoh was down at the water that day. If I had to guess, it was just his normal routine. Maybe it was a Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday kind of thing. I really don't know. But it seemed like this was his normal everyday, nothing out of the ordinary thing that he does. And God says, Moses, you go down the water where you know he's going to be. And, and this is where we're going to kick this whole thing off. And I, I have to be honest with you, as I'm studying this, it, this, this moment feels a little familiar to me. And I don't know, maybe it felt a little bit familiar to you from earlier in our study. I'm talking about Exodus chapter two, when Moses was a baby and he was found among the reeds of the Nile. And I'm wondering, is this the same place? I don't know, but what if it is? What if this is where Pharaoh and his family for generations have been coming to bathe or worship or whatever they were doing down there? And, and maybe as Moses is standing on the edge of the Nile River, he might even go. And it was right over there that they found me. 80 years ago, and my sister was standing right over there watching over me, and here I am again. Same place, maybe, same place. O- only this time, 80 years, 80 years ago, was about Moses being delivered. This time, it's about the Israelites being delivered right here on the edge of the Nile River. Verse 16 says, Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. Basically, Moses is just repeating, here's why we're here. I've come, I've shown you some stuff. You refuse, you're unyielding. And so what's about to happen? It's on you, Pharaoh, because you were so unyielding. Verse 17, this is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink and the Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. And in case you're wondering, there are those who would say the Nile didn't really turn into blood, but there was some kind of soil reaction. People have tried to explain this stuff for years, that it wasn't a miracle. Friends, I'm telling you, we are reading a miracle. We are reading water turning into actual blood. This is the hand of God that, that did this. And, and I don't want you to miss this really key important thing that, that Moses says. It's right there in verse 17. This is what the Lord says. Now that phrase is gonna be seen many more times as we go through these plagues. Moses now has kind of transitioned a little bit from, hey, I am here to tell you, Pharaoh, what needs to happen, but now he's here as like an ambassador for God. I am here speaking the words of God. And as an ambassador now, Moses is like, this is what the Lord says. This is what's going to happen. And what else does he say? What's his final announcement? By this, you will know what? That I am the Lord. So these phrases you're going to read time and time again. Why does this language come up? Because there is a bigger picture at play. This is what God says, the one true God. You know, this, this, is, this is God doing his thing so that 
everyone will know that he is the Lord. Now, why else is this language so important? Why is it that we identify God is the one doing it so that everybody will know? Remember the bigger picture. This is so, God, this is God obliterating. This is God's war also on all the false gods of Egypt. This is, this is these plagues are against them. This is God's doing and they won't be able to stand up to it. So this judgment is on the Nile River itself because the Nile River itself was worshiped as a god in Egypt. And there was a number of deities that were associated with the Nile River. The Nile River was everything for the ancient Egyptians. So we know from ancient writings, from hieroglyphics, from, from tombs that they've uncovered, from reliefs, that there was a, a god, of, uh, 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 one of the 80 major deities was associated with the Nile River, and that god was named Hapi, H-A-P-I. You can read all about him on the internet. And they, they worshiped this guy. They, they associated him with, with the Nile River and, and all this stuff. Now let me tell you, if you go Google him, and some of you will do this later, I didn't feel like putting any of this imagery up on the screen, but Hapi is a male deity with a beard, with female breast, and is pregnant. That's how he's depicted. He'd fit right in today, let me just tell you. He'd fit right in the United States. But he was associated, the reason he is depicted that way is because they saw that all the fertility of the world came from him. And, and all the source of life coming out of the Nile came from him. So all the fish and all the drinking water and everything, that, that it was from him. So he was like the fertility god of the Nile. And it was a common belief at the time that if Hapi ever died, Egypt would die. That is how they viewed him. They sang songs. We have hymns written to this false god that we found in ancient writings in Egypt. Now just think about this for a minute. All the water turns to blood. They can't drink any of it and all the fish die. So what is Hapi doing for them? Nothing. He could not supply anything for the people. So this plague that God dropped on the Nile River, okay, it's a demonstration of this reality. Sustenance from life comes from the one true God and nowhere else. Who made the fish? Who created the water? Who put the Nile there? Where does all this come from? You want to say it's from this God, this God Hapa. I'm God saying, no, it is from me. What is he doing for you? This is God passing judgment on all the false gods of Egypt. Now look at verse 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and on the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. So it's not just the Nile River, is it? Any ponds, any other streams, any other creeks, anything else, any other place they've stored water, anywhere water flows, anywhere somebody's drinking glass, mid-drink turns to blood. Friends, this is everywhere. This is countrywide. Now there's two words in this text that I think you should pay special attention to. Do you see the last verse we read? Even in vessels of wood and stone. Do you guys know what that means? Even in vessels, vessels of wood and stone were covered in blood. Do you, do you understand what's being said here? As you study the Old Testament, just about every time you see stone and wood put together like that, it is always in direct link to an idol. This is a reference to idols of the day. Even the idols of wood and stone 
would be covered in blood. How is that? Well, it was common practice that the priests of these false religions would wash their idols every day. They'd wash them with water. They'd clean them. It was part of their ritual of worship. So can you imagine an idol to Hapai, and the priest is there, and he's got water, and he's washing it, and as he's washing it, it turns to blood, and there's blood dripping off these idols that they worship. You need to understand, this is God making a mockery out of their beliefs. What does he want them to ultimately know? What's his big picture? That I am the Lord, and there is no other. This is God mocking them. This is God dismantling the foundations of every belief they have about the Nile River. Look at verse 20. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile and all the water was changed to blood. The fish in the Nile died. The river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. Do you really need to use that much imagination to know just how nasty this would be? Blood everywhere. Dead fish everywhere. I don't know how many fish are in the Nile River today. I'm guessing it's in the hundreds of thousands. And they all died. And they all washed up on shore. And it all stinks. In my house, it takes one fish to stink up the whole house. <laughs> Can you imagine hundreds of thousands? Mixed in blood. We're also talking about a, a time when there's no drinking water, so there's no bathing. And there's no cleaning. All the things you use water for. Can you imagine if we had no water? What that, how that would change our lives? All this is happening. Now the next part of this is, is quite interesting. Like the, the miracle of the staff turning into the snake and the magicians were able to reproduce it. Believe it or not, they could reproduce this one too. Look at verse 22. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. All I want to say about this, I feel like I covered it last week, is that, yes, they did it. They copied it. Now, was it sleight of hand like the, the cartoon did? I, I don't know. Was it dark evil that they tapped into? Could have been. I wouldn't dismiss either option. But here's the point that we need to take away from this. They may have been able to copy it, but they couldn't reverse it. They couldn't undo it. They couldn't, by all of their prayers to their false god, Hapi, they could not undo it. So friends, it doesn't matter what kind of cheap trick or copy they did. They couldn't change a thing. So what does that say to us? What does that prove to us today? That he is the Lord and there is no other. Let's look at our last verse, verse 24. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. It, it doesn't say that they were successful. Maybe they were, maybe they, they weren't. But, but the question is, where is their God of water? Where is the God that provides this for them? They are a people that have been reduced to taking matters into their own hands and they gotta go dig for it. So can you imagine thousands of people digging holes along, now where's their God? Where's their deity? No, no, these people are on their own. And I wonder if they're starting to clue into the fact 
that maybe Happy ain't who he said he was. So Yahweh is making himself known as the one true God by obliterating all these false gods. He's obliterating people's beliefs in them. And I want you to know today as we wrap up, God is still in that business today, you know. Our God was the same then as he is today and as he will be forever. God is still in the business of obliterating false beliefs. What does he still want for all of us? That we would know that he is the one true God and there is no other. That desire has never changed. And you know it's gotta break his heart like it did with the Egyptians, or excuse me, with the Israelites of old when they turned to other gods and they said, no, there is others. And it would break God's heart. He would grieve over this. And I believe he grieves the same way every time that we create a false idol. Now, we don't talk about it that way. But when we put something in front of our allegiance to the one true God, when we let something come between us and God, when we allow sin or something else to disrupt what God is doing with us, his church, I believe that too grieves him because what does he want? What's his bigger picture? Even today, that everyone would know that he's the one true God. And that's how God still is. And he wanted it so badly and desires it so much that he came himself to ensure it. He came as Jesus and he walked the earth for 33 years and and he taught people about the one true God and how we love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And how the greatest thing we could ever do is love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what God wants. Why would we do that? Not because we follow after false idols, but because he is the one true God and that is a reflection of him. And he died and he rose again, proving that he is the one true God. So friends, his desire has never changed. We need to see that who he is in Exodus is who he is today is the one true God. So my friends, what? What is keeping you from seeing it? What is in the way of him being the one and only true God? Who is your happy? Who do you look for for sustenance in life besides Yahweh? That's something you're gonna have to wrestle down, but I can tell you what he wants you to see is he's the one true God. Let me pray for you. Lord, I just thank you for your word as always. I always wanna give you praise for that. Thank you, Lord, for how it teaches us and guides us. And I thank you, Lord, for how you use the account of the Exodus to still teach this timeless truth, your bigger picture, that you are the one true God. And I pray that even if there is nowhere else in the state of Arkansas, there will be one place up here in the northwest corner that still believes this, that you are the one true God and there is no other, and that we live our lives accordingly, that, Lord, we don't look to other things for, for sustenance or life or, or any. We don't put anything between us and you because you alone are the one true God. Lord, I pray that that would be more true than ever here in this place. And Lord, we would pray for your blessings and your favor as we honor you, Lord, and walk with you to the best of our ability, God, knowing that even when we mess up, your grace is there. But Lord, I pray out of this place, in each one of our families, in each one of our work environments, in every one of our neighborhoods, there's gonna be somebody, it'll be us, that honors you as the one true God. So Lord, this is our prayer. 
We thank you and give you honor as we pray it. Praising you, Lord, for saving us and showing yourself to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So, Lord, we offer all this in praise. In Jesus' name, amen.